The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. After he entered the Pharisee's home, he took his place at the table. Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's house. She brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster. Standing behind him at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the oil on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. He would know that she is a sinner. Jesus replied, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, speak, he said. A certain lender had two debtors. One owed enough money to pay 500 people for a day's work. The other owed enough money for 50. When they couldn't pay, the lender forgave the debts of them both. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the largest debt cancelled. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfumed oil on my feet. This is why I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven, so she has shown great love. The one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other table guests began to say among themselves, who is this person that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Good morning. Hi, friends. My name is Joshua. I use he, him pronouns. I'm the youth director here at City Church San Francisco, and I look different today. Um, people ask me after uh, I was ordained 
uh, about two weeks ago, people kept, the common question that kept on coming up was, so should we call you reverend now? Like, should we call you reverend? And the answer to that is no. Please refer to me as the most honorable and distinguished reverend. Joshua Hollandone. Uh, no, it's a, it's a joy to be with you today. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah, it's, it's always a privilege to be able to open up uh, the word and to discern what God might be saying uh, to us as a community. Um, so I hope you're here for that. Um, and if you're not, um, I hope that you're surprised a little bit by what God has to say for you today, to us today. Uh, so why don't you pray with me before we get started? God, we are thankful that you are a God of life, that you are a God of beauty, a God of goodness. And so many times we try to box you in and we try to um, confine you to a certain place or to a certain people. But you are the God of all life and all living beings, all creation are precious in your sight. And so, God, would you show us and open up our minds, open up our imaginations to understand your love, your deep love for our world. We pray this in the name of the Christ. Amen. What does it feel like to be right? What does it feel like to be right? So try to imagine a time where you were convinced that you were right, and the opposing person was wrong, and that's going to give you a pretty good picture of how Simon feels, one of the main characters in the story today, how Simon feels when he's, when he's seeing this scandalous scene kind of unfold at his dinner table. Here he is, he's a religious leader who's invited Jesus, a great rabbi, teacher, to come into his home when an uninvited party guest comes and quite rudely and very publicly interrupts the dinner. The uninvited guest uh, was, it is implied, um, very probable, that this person has an unsavory reputation. This person has a reputation all throughout the city of being a person that you don't invite to the dinner table and you certainly don't allow to touch you. Uh, Simon is beside himself. So even though she wasn't invited, everyone in the room knows who this woman is. Well, everyone except for Jesus, the supposed great teacher and prophet. He seems unfazed by this woman and her actions. And he almost seems to entertain it, seems to encourage it. And it isn't so much that Jesus is, isn't scandalized like Simon is by this woman. It's that Jesus seems clueless as to who this person is. And that's when we get insight into what Simon thinks uh, about Jesus. And uh, Luke gives us a glimpse into Simon's thinking where he says to himself, if Jesus was truly a prophet, he would know exactly the kind of woman who's touching him. That's what it feels like to be right. So in seminary, I live in 
an intentional community. We were a group of 30-plus grad students who lived in these a tiny apartment bungalows in Pasadena, California. We were all living away from our families, and we were all collectively broke. <laughs> but we had each other. And to this day, uh, my partner Melody and I, uh, we say that that was, was one of the most beautiful times of life. Uh, it was a time where we felt like our marriage really blossomed and where we became adults. Um, our intentional community was diverse in every way imaginable, and I really mean that. We had queer students, we had straight students, we had single students, married students, we had single parent households. Uh, we were different politically, theologically, ethnically, age, stage of life. And what brought us together week after week were, was this practice of common meals. So in order to be in our community, you had to commit to a certain set of practices ahead of time, and we would have community meals, common meals, week after week. And your responsibility as a community member was to, for one night out of the week, cook dinner for the entire community. And there was, uh, there was really good meals and, you know, not so great meals, too. Um, one dinner, I remember a community member who is white used a certain term, and they used the term ethnic food. And they used it um, chatting with another community member who is Hmong American. And uh, the, that community member, after hearing that phrase ethnic food, said, what do you mean by ethnic food? All food is ethnic. The mic drop. And the white student was speechless. Because to that white student, it hadn't occurred to them that their particular culture or ethnicity was not the norm when it came to food. That's what white normativity feels like. You accept certain behaviors, certain values, certain ways of thinking and patterns of being as a standard, and every culture around you has to conform to that specific standard. In conversations of, around race, we often overlook this concept of white normativity, which, which privileges one perspective, not as one among many, but as the right one, as the superior one. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We still haven't asked the big question, what in the world is Jesus doing at this party? What is he doing here? In Jewish antiquity, invitations to dinner were a reflection of one's social status. When you were eating, um, what, where you were eating and with whom you were eating reflected your place in the community. And I know we have no idea what that feels like. No, we do. What are you talking about? Of course we do. We absolutely know what that feels like today. Every one of us here has, has gone through that torturous experience that every middle schooler has to go through when they enter into middle school for the first time and they're at the cafeteria and they gotta choose a seat at the cafeteria. It's painful. And that just continues, by the way, middle schoolers, that continues when you're older, okay? All of us know that experience from exclusive dinner parties to seating charts at weddings to where you're sitting at a concert venue or a sporting event, all of us know that the unspoken rule in these social settings is location, location, location. How close you are 
to the host or to the performer says something about your place in society. Or maybe you're just really good at getting past security, I don't know. I mean, it could be the case, right? Uh, Notice how close Jesus is to Simon. So some translations kind of render the Greek pretty literally, and they describe the actual position that Jesus takes when he's at the table. It says that he's not just sitting at the table, he's not just taking place at the table, he's reclining at the table. Why is that important? Well, these seats were given to people with the highest places of honor. So Jesus' ability to recline at the table, to relax at the table, was given to him, and it distinguished him as a guest of honor than those at the table who were uh, lower classes. It's a great PR move for Jesus. Looks great. Give this guy's agent a raise. And Jesus is somebody who could use good press. Because in the verses preceding our story, we're told that Jesus has gotten a bad rap of being a glutton, a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus could use a friend like Simon in high places. And while some present at the dinner party might have thought that Jesus was there to boost his reputation, we, the audience of Luke's gospel, know that nothing can be further from the truth. How do you think that this unnamed woman learned that there was a dinner party happening at Simon the Pharisee's house. I think Jesus invited her. Because that seems like something that Jesus would do. It's almost implied in the passage, and I think this is a fair reading, that they arrive together. Simon's table reinforces his social status. It reinforces that he holds a seat of power, a place at the table. And Jesus' mission, the Messiah, is to reorder the seats at the table. These are the words spoken by Mary at the beginning of Luke's gospel. God pulls down the proud and the powerful and lifts up the poor and the lowly. So at this scene, this is not a violent overturning of tables. This is far more subversive than that. Jesus is radically reorienting the imagination of what it means like to be a part of the people of God. This is the lifting up of the poor and the lowly. Reputation be damned. And Jesus knows that the power or the path to liberation requires new vision, new perspective, and that the role of the Messiah will restore the sight of those who are most blind in his people. And it's safe to assume that the person whose vision is impaired in the passage is Simon. So the first part of the story is told from Simon's perspective. This is a risk that Luke takes. It's a calculated risk exposing us to Simon's point of view because it leaves us susceptible to othering this unnamed woman as Simon does. And historically, that's exactly what we've done. We've forgotten this woman and what she's done for Jesus. Luke tells the story from Simon's perspective as an indictment to Simon himself. The woman remains unnamed because that's all she means to Simon. She's someone who is other, someone who has no value, someone who is inferior. And Simon isn't surprised at this woman's behavior. He takes one look at her and he says, typical. Of course, she would make 
the scene. That's what she does. Of course, she would try to score points with Jesus. What does it feel like to be wrong? This was a, a question that psychologist uh, Jonathan Haidt once posed to an academic panel. Um, as he was on an academic panel to an audience full of students, he says, what does it feel like to be wrong? Fielded questions from the audience, and they said, you know, uh, things like it feels annoying, it feels bad, it feels awkward, feels, you feel ashamed when you're wrong. And Jonathan Haidt said, well, that's actually what it feels like the moment that you discover that you're wrong. But until that moment happens, being wrong feels exactly like being right. Being wrong feels exactly like being right. And that's what Jesus is trying to get Simon to understand, is that he has this massive blind spot, especially when it comes to this precious human. Jesus is not trying to get Simon to call into question the entirety of his experience, but he's trying to get Simon to acknowledge the limitations of his experience. The limitations and to forego his certainty. And although many of us often decry evangelicals for the sin of certainty, I think that we're far more certain than we care to admit. So psychologists use the language of social scripts to understand how humans behave in social situations. Much like actors following the scene of a play, people uh, will follow predetermined patterns of behavior, scripts, without thinking. Now, scripts can be useful to anticipate how we should behave in certain situations. Whenever we go on a retreat with our students, I give them a script ahead of time. We call these the retreat rules. I say, since we are guests at this camp, please be respectful to the campgrounds and needless to say, students often test this theory. Like when they are literally scaling buildings and running on rooftops during capture the flag. But as you know, social scripts also have a shadow side. And this is when we assign certain behaviors or value to a person or a certain group of people. We call these things stereotypes. Or when these scripts perpetuate harmful ways of thinking about said individuals or groups of people. We begin to see them as inferior. When the Philippines was colonized by the U.S. in 1898, we were called the Little Brown Brothers. This was a derogatory phrase that was popularized by President William Taft, who uh, popularized this phrase, and it captured so much of American sentiment of what uh, the Philippines was to the U.S., that um, because we were literally smaller in stature, we were childlike, deferent, in need of our American brothers and sisters, to help us govern ourselves. And that legacy of paternalism lives on today. You know, 
Filipino Americans, we are the third largest ethnic group amongst AAPI. And yet we are criminally, criminally underrepresented in the public sphere. You name it, education, politics, entertainment. Is that just a coincidence? You know, as a Filipino-American man, I have to be cognizant of the fact of how these, harm, these social scripts are at play as soon as I walk into a room. It doesn't matter how accomplished I am, how articulate I am. It doesn't matter if I have a caller. These social scripts are always a factor in any given situation. They always affect how I am perceived by others and how I am treated by them. Why? Because like I said earlier, social scripts don't work that way. We don't get to determine how we slip into these ways of thinking or ways of being because we've been so socially conditioned to think and view each other as inferior. Asking when racial bias is at play in the social situation is a little bit like asking, when do I have a blind spot when I'm driving? What's the answer to that question? All the time. We always have blind spots. And so the objective then is not to eliminate the blind spot altogether. That's impossible. Only God can do that. Rather, the objective is to be conscious of what these blind spots are and to keep them in check. Because if we don't keep them in check, who suffers from it? People like the unnamed woman in the story. People who are rendered invisible. So the invitation of Christ to Simon is what one scholar calls an invitation into enlightenment. Because if we look again at this woman, we might see what Jesus wants us to see about her. I was reading up on social scripts, as you might have caught um, in this sermon, uh, and, and I learned about how this plays out in families, in family systems. So family scripts can actually be a little bit more oppressive um, and harder to uh, shake and break out of um, than social scripts. Um, so this happens when we assign um, certain behavior to a certain family member, thereby limiting their development or their growth as individuals. Um, in order to overcome these unhealthy scripts, one psychologist said and argued, the problem is you can't just edit the script. You can't just correct it. So you can't just edit the script that oh, I'm the problem child or I'm a, the unwanted child. What do you have to do in order to overcome this? What, is, what do families have to do to overcome unhealthy scripts and ways of relating and being and seeing each other? The psychologist argued you have to throw away the script. You have to throw away that script entirely, and you have to write a new one. So when we come to the question in this passage of what is this woman doing in this story, a place where she doesn't belong, what is she doing? She's living into the new script. She's living into the new script that God has given to her. You see, Simon looks at this woman, and all he sees 
are actions that he considers typical of someone who's a sex worker. That's what's implied. Jesus says, uh, tells him a story that disrupts uh, Simon's narrative. The story that Jesus gives is the true story, the whole story, that even though this woman has broken ways, she is now living into the freedom that God has given to her because she has been forgiven greatly. She loves greatly. And she loves at a great cost to herself. She loves despite being misconstrued by her community, especially the powerful in her community like Simon. So she will attend a party where she is not invited to be Jesus' guest. There's an urgency to her actions. If you, if you pay close attention to it, there's a, an intentionality to them. She attends only to the feet of Jesus. The filthiest part of the human body. She's not trying to garner sympathy or attention. This is, this is worship. This is a sacred act. She wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair, the crown of every woman. And she gives to Jesus the most valuable thing that she owns in the world. An expensive oil from a jar made of a precious stone. And even though she's terrified at, at how these actions might further alienate her from her community, she doesn't care. Because she needs to express the love to someone who has set her free. She needs to live into the freedom that God has given her. Do you see this woman? Do we see this woman? One of the final memories that I have of my grandfather was when I first did a funeral as a pastor. His name is Sofronio Himoto. He was the founding pastor of Christ Our Savior Church, my home church in Chicago, growing up. It's a Filipino-American congregation on the north side of Chicago. You might have noticed that there is a name difference there. He is not my biological grandfather, but my siblings and I uh, didn't have any grandparents growing up. So, um, and uh, him and his uh, wife couldn't have any kids, so they essentially adopted uh, our family and vice versa. And we called him Lolo Pastor. It was May of 2014. I'm a youth pastor at CUSC. I get a call from my mom. She calls me. She says, hey, Nanai Belen, an elderly woman in our congregation, is dying. Come now. Uh, I drive over, and mind you, I don't normally get these calls as uh, the youth pastor, but our uh, senior pastor was on vacation, and I was the closest thing that they had to a pastor, so of course they decided to send me. And I get to the house, and I get into the room where Nanai Belen is, and uh, she's in pretty bad shape. She is so skinny, she's not very lucid, she can't really speak. Her uh, children are 
in shock. Some of them are emotionless. Others are crying. And uh, I don't know what to do. I, this is not something that Bible college trained me for in a situation, how, how to confront death and how to be a presence of comfort in, in people's last moments. So I did what I could. I said a prayer over her. And then I just sat there. Because I couldn't move. I don't say a word. I'm really, I'm like, I'm frightened. And that's when Lolo enters the room. And he sees me sitting in a chair, scared, next to this elderly woman. Without hesitation, he takes one look at me. And he goes to Nanai's bedside. And he takes her by the hand. And he begins repeating into her ear in Tagalog, God is calling you home now. God is calling you home now, Nanai. And he begins to sing. And the atmosphere changes. I don't remember, like, if there was actual sunlight, but it felt like someone, something was illuminating that room. He begins to sing, and he begins to sing with the strength of the greatest ancestors of our faith. No fear. No tears. Only joy. Only faith. I remember, like, I've never seen my grandfather so strong in that moment. He had to have been, like, 76. You know, if we're going to be a people of radical hospitality, it takes more than just tolerating each other's presence. It means acknowledging the strength and beauty that each of us bring and showing each other what it means to be created in the image of God. This doesn't mean just acknowledging who we can be, but what we already are, who we are now. And that first means acknowledging that we don't really see each other. We don't see that strength. We don't see that beauty. And so we ask Jesus to give us the eyes to see each other. And it first comes with acknowledging the fact that we don't see. There's no shame in admitting that you don't see. Until we do this, everything that we do is empty words. If you're API and you're here, I want to let you know, our community, we need your stories. We need your stories. And the most courageous thing that you can do, the bravest thing that you can do, is to live into the script, the new script that God has given to you. So may you step forward in faith and discover that strength that you did not know that you had. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may it be so.